glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. John chapter 10, beginning verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. We're very familiar. Before I read John 15, before I read 1 John 3.16, we're very familiar with what John 3.16 says. Not 1 John, but John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're familiar with that. But I don't believe the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ, can really be understood outside the truth in this verse. If Jesus was simply martyred as Stephen was, or later Paul was, or later Peter was, that, that, that moves our heart to say, wow, to die for one's faith. This is Memorial Day. We, we remember men and, and, and people who've laid down their lives in time past that we might have the freedom to do what we're doing today. That warms our heart to realize. I, me and my kids were listening yesterday to a, a snippet of a speech by Adolf Hitler, and you're reminded of how important it was for World War II to be fought and won and what it cost some people at that time uh, to stand up to the evil that was spreading through our world. You listen to the man, that man speak and see the translation, what he had to say, and he was evil incarnate. There's just no doubt about it. And there are men who willingly went knowing they wouldn't come back and died. And that warms our heart. But listen to me this morning. That's not how Jesus died 2,000 years ago. That's, it's don't, let's not put him in the realm of a war hero. We are so grateful for that. But it's not the same thing. I understand they laid down their lives, but you, you also understand that each one of us is part of what's wrong with our world. The world is messed up because of sin, and every one of us bring a level of sin into this world. And therefore, I was talking to a man this last week, and I said, you know, honestly, well, obviously as Christians we reject the concept of karma. For those people that believe in karma, meaning you dole bad out, you're going to get bad back. That's kind of the idea. You, you're going to get back what you get, you know, what you put out. Now, there's a principle that you roll a stone, it's going to roll back on you. That's truth, but... Let me say this, if you just believed in that, and that's not a truth, but if you just believed in, you know, you put out bad, bad vibes, you're going to get them back, how many bad vibes would you and I get back? How many of us have contributed to the sinful state of our world? So is it is it really ironic that we might at some point in time have to make some sacrifices to oppose that? If we've contributed... How many of us know that Jesus Christ did not contribute one 
iota to the sinfulness of our world. He did not contribute one sin to our world, but he bore everyone on himself. I, 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 I just want to say again, where, where, what we're looking at this morning, the fact that he laid down his life, the fact that he did not have to die, but he chose to, is what glorifies the love of God. Do you realize, we know this is fact and truth, God tells us so. At the last moment, Jesus could have called for legions of angels to come down and execute vengeance on his enemies, and he chose not to. That's, that's what we got to get a hold of. When he's speaking of laying down his life, he willingly and voluntarily died when he did not have to. No one put him in a position where, well, he would have escaped if he could have. No, no. He could have and he didn't. And when it says, I lay my life down, that's what we must understand. No man, ta- the Romans did not take Jesus' life. They were the implement that, that carried it out, but they did not forcefully kill him against his will. The Jewish leadership, the Jews of his day, did not take Jesus' life. To take is to steal something from someone against their will. Nobody took Jesus' life. From their angle they did, but not from his. They could not have if he didn't allow them. We must understand there was more going on than a heartwarming story on Calvary 2,000 years ago. There was more than something that motivates us to be good. An eternal purpose was carried out when Jesus died on the cross. That is the clear, undeniable truth communicated in the Word of God that what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago was an eternal act. It was something of eternal value, of eternal significance. We see things today that have significance for years to come, but not eternal. How many of you know that the, the principles of National Socialism are on the rise today? Adolf Hitler's dead, but the war that was fought is going to have to be fought again at some point in time. Because the very nation that was blessed most by that victory today is embracing some of the very principles that men died to defeat. (laughs) With me? But what Jesus did 2,000 years ago cannot be undone. It was eternal. It was planned before God ever created man and it was carried out with perfect execution by God in the flesh. We must understand that's what we're dealing with today. We speak of Jesus laying down his life. It was something that was voluntary, intentional, purposeful, an act that he entirely and that he personally was responsible for. And I want to see three things this morning. You could, we could divide it other ways, but three things about this act of laying down his life that I believe paint a clear picture, and they're right here in the Bible, of what Jesus actually did when he laid down his life. So now to John chapter 15. We've read John 10. Now go to John chapter 15, verse 13. John 15, verse 13. Jesus says this, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man do what? Lay down his life for his friends. Now to 1 John chapter 3, 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Not John 3, 16. It says almost exactly the same thing in 1 John 3, 16. Communicates the same truth. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives 
for the brethren. Using these few verses, John 10, 15, 17, and 18, John 15, 13, and 1 John 3, 16, and kind of putting a magnifying glass on it this morning, I want us to see the significance of his life laid down for us. Consider, number one, that Jesus' life laid down was a sovereign act. And by that I mean it was not just the act of a man, it was an act of God. We just read 1 John 3, 16, and I want you to notice, unless you have a Bible that's been changed, it's going to tell you who laid down his life for you. 1 John 3, 16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of who? God. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he, who? Who are we talking about? God laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's not a misprint nor mistranslation. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1.14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The fact that Jesus laid down his life, that, that act was something that was divinely ordained by God before the foundation of the world. We referenced that already. I'll give you some verses to just reiterate that. Look at Philippians chapter 2 before we look at some other passages of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2. And if you're not following along in your Bible, then just listen along. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. The Bible says, uh, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That's so about his incarnation when God the Son became a man. Verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so the idea would be this, that God in heaven had this the, the plan and the purpose in place for our salvation long before we were around, and Jesus Christ came and fulfilled a divine purpose. What I mean by the fact it was a sovereign act, that Jesus as God in the flesh was carrying out the will of of God the Father. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But His own will, as God, this is not something... And you say, why is this important? If you're going to witness to people about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to say something like this. What kind of a cruel father would would murder his son or have his son murdered for the world? What kind of a father would force his son to do that? If we're under the impression that God forced Jesus, the man, to do something he didn't want to do... We got the wrong impression. God, to remedy man's problem, became man. We need to understand this. There's a lot, there's some doctrinal instruction, especially in this first point. Man's religion says this these are the steps to become as good as God. That started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Lucifer, Satan, came along in this form of a serpent, as the serpent, and told Eve, said, If you eat the fruit, you shall be as gods. You shall be as what? You'll be as God, as God himself. And you and Adam, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, meaning this is the step to ascend to deity. If you study any false religion, and this is how you'll know it's false, it is some man telling some other man how to take certain steps to become as good as God. 
and it is instructing you as man how to become God. When God's salvation is God became man. False religion says man must through good deeds and good doing exalt himself to the righteousness of God. The way of salvation is God seeing man's need humbled himself and became a man so that he might redeem us. And so when I say it was a sovereign act, God stepped down into humanity and came to rescue us. I read a story as, as an illustration. I saw this yesterday and it tells of a little puppy dog or dog that grew up and he liked getting washed off with a water hose. And someone asked, why was it like that? And they explained, so when he was a puppy, he fell into the septic tank. And he's down in there wallowing around in that muck and mire and his little, the little boy that owned him got a ladder and went down in there and pulled him out. And when he got him out of the septic tank, he got a water hose and washed him off. And from that day forward, said that little dog loved seeing a water hose. The analogy is to us. God in Jesus Christ stepped down into the filth of humanity and when He saved us, He pulled us out and started washing and cleaning us. Amen? That's a perfect analogy of what Jesus did. He stepped right down out of heaven into the filth of humanity. So we need to get this clear. When He says, I laid down my life, what He says in John 10, just before that, He said, even as the Father knows me, I know Him. Nobody can say that. No one would even know the Father if Jesus hadn't revealed Him to us. We would know about Him, but we couldn't know Him. But because Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, He is one with God. When Christ comes to dwell in you, He'll teach you who God is. And this is the point this morning. The laying down of His life was a sovereign act that was according to God's divine purpose and plan. John 10, 15, the first part, as I just said, He said, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. God in Christ was carrying out man's salvation by Christ coming to lay his life down. First Peter, I'll just read this quickly and another verse will move right along. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Here it is, verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Meaning, this was God's plan before He ever created us, but He's brought it to light during this time. He has brought it about during this time, and it's been made manifest unto us. This is, it's not as though God was up in heaven wringing His hands saying, Oh no, oh no, man messed everything up. What do I do? God already knew all that would happen. Now, some want to shake their nubby finger at God and say, then why did he let it happen? Don't charge God ever with folly. When I charge God with doing something wrong, I'm the fool. Amen? God is always right. So, well, that's convenient. It's not convenient. It's just true. (laughs) He's always right. And so, God knew what he was doing. His divine purpose and plan is that he himself would come and take on humanity, and as such, he would lay that life down in our place. And so it was His divine purpose that Christ would lay down His life because it's, that's His plan of salvation. And He said He has divine power. saying It's a sovereign act for Him to lay down His life. Look what He says in verses 17 and 18 of John 10. He says, Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I may, might what? Take it again. This proves that Jesus is God. 
How many of you say, you know, this afternoon uh, I, I'm going to have to go and die to rescue someone's life, but I'll come tell you about it tomorrow. We don't have the power to do that because death has power over us outside of Christ. You, you and I in ourselves have no escape from death. How many of you say, you know what? I heard a man say one time, one of the gentlemen from the church was trying to talk to him about the Lord, and he said, well, I'm not planning on dying. Well, jolly good for you. You're going to anyway. You and I don't get to, we don't get a check out of that war. Job says there's no discharge in that war. Death is more powerful than us. But Jesus said, I lay my life down that I may take it again. Verse 18, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. You know why he could say that? Because he's God. And we must get a hold of this. The laying down of the life of Christ was not a mere man feeling pity for his fellow humans. It was not a mere good example. It was God Almighty doing something about our sinful state. Man messed man up and God said, I'll become a man to fix it. That's the simple way of putting it. And so the laying down of his life was a sovereign act. Number two, he's not only God, what else is Jesus? Here's something you've got to get a hold of. Say, is he God? Yes. Is he man? Yes. As God, he came down from heaven to become man and lay down his life for us. As man, he submitted to the will of God. You know why Jesus died? Because he wanted to or because the Father wanted him to? And what's the answer to that question? Yes. His will was in such perfect harmony, because he's God, but as man, in such perfect harmony with the will of God, that anything the Father wanted him to do is what he wanted to do. How many of us can say, well, that's me. My will and God's will are never at odds with each other. Ha! Huh. If that was the case, then we could be the Savior. So his act of laying down his life was not only a sovereign act, God coming in, in the form of man to remedy man's sinful condition, but let's look at the other side. He is also equally man. He did limit his powers at and limit himself to humanity. The Bible says he took upon him the form of a servant, and being found in likeness as a man, he humbled himself and became what? Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. How many of us have ever demonstrated this kind of love for God? I love him so much that I will die rather than disobey him. No? Adam decided, I will die because I've disobeyed him. And Jesus said, I'll die so that I obey him. What Adam undid through his disobedience, Jesus came and overcame through his obedience. And so let's read it in John chapter 10, verse 18. What does he say? No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And then what does he say? This commandment have I received of my Father. The death of Jesus Christ as a substitute for our sins, we'll get to that in just a moment, was the will of God the Father, commanded by God the Father, and God the Son, Jesus the man, submitted himself to that death. And so it was a sovereign act, but it was a submissive act, according to the Father's purpose and plan, unto the pleasure of the Father. Let's read a couple of things about the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, 29. John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus says this, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. 
He'd said in John 10, 17, Therefore doth my Father love me. Why? Why did he say my Father loves me? Because I lay my life down. He was laying his life down in obedience to the Father, and therefore there was a special love from the Father for his obedience. Here he says, I do always those things that please him. How many of you right now say, Pastor, I'm willing to stand and give my testimony. That's the record of my life. I do always those things that please God. So we can just start examining everything you've ever done. You can start examining everything I've ever done and say, yep, that was always only to please God. No. But that's Jesus. So why are we making this point? Because I want us to understand that God became man, but that man, the man Christ Jesus, is a sinless man, a perfect man, who always did what pleased the Father, even unto his own death. Luke chapter 22, we're familiar with this text. Luke chapter 22, and the bulk of our message is in our final point, so hang with me here. Luke chapter 22, verses 41 and 42. Speaking of Jesus when he's in the Mount of Olives, the the eve of his crucifixion, and he said, and he was withdrawn, or in verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. And then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What cup is he talking about? The cup of death. Now, again, let's, let's, let's be extremely honest with ourselves this morning. I would love to think, given the opportunity... To obey God unto the death, I will gladly do that. But you find our Lord and Savior here is who would want to drink the cup? Who would want to drink the cup of God's wrath? Any takers? I believe with all my heart only one man could. That's why only one man did. Only man, One man was qualified to do what he did. Here's where, what I'm saying. His heart was so given as the man Christ Jesus to a fulfilling the will of the Father. He said, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, as bitter as this cup is, not my will but thine be done. So when we hear the terms, I lay down my life for the sheep, we know that was God in the flesh laying his life down. But that's Jesus Christ, the man, doing so, submitted to the will of God, knowing the pain it would cost him. I'll be honest with you, I hate pain. I don't even enjoy pain, mental, emotional, spiritual. I don't care. I don't like pain. And if I can avoid it, I will. That's, that's, that's human. That's normal. But here's the thing. The Lord Jesus Christ said, you know what? I will die because I know it pleases the Father to redeem mankind. And by the way, it's the only thing that could redeem us. Nothing else. It's the only plan God had, the only one he's ever had to save mankind. So it was a sovereign act. It was a submissive act. But of course we understand this. Then it was a sacrificial act. A sacrificial act. Here's what I want us to get a hold of this morning. God in the flesh, as man submitted to God the Father, said, you know what, I will willingly and purposely die. Not only die, but die the most brutal death known to mankind. I can't think of a more brutal death than a Roman crucifixion. Brutal both from man, and then while being crucified by man, God the Father would turn away His face from Him. The world would go dark for three hours. He would cry, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Who in the world would choose that if you had the power not to? 
If me ask something, if you knew today, let's just walk it through for just a moment, that before the day is done, because of your obedience to God, you're going to be hauled down to the courthouse, you're going to be declared not guilty, and having been declared not guilty, they're going to take you out, rip your clothes off of you in public, beat you with a cat of nine tails until your back looks like hamburger, they're going to put thorns in your head, smack it in there with a stick, spit in your face, sock you in the jaw. Why? For not being guilty. Then when they're done with that, they're going to lay you on a couple of pieces of timber and they're going to put spikes through your feet and through your hands. Well, doesn't it sound lovely already? And you will lay on that cross until you suffocate to death. And if you don't die quick enough, they're going to come along and break your legs. Sounds lovely. I got news for you. The only way I'm going through that is if you drag me there kicking and screaming. There's no way in the world I'm going to do that on purpose. But he did. In an act of submission to the almighty divine plan of God, God says, man is going to ruin the, the perfect world I've created him in. He's going to destroy himself, and though I could kill him, though I could destroy him eternally and cast him away, instead, I have designed a plan to save him. I will become him and go through what he's caused. You ever want a clear and distinct picture of God's view of sin? Read about Calvary's cross. Yeah, I like asking men, if God gave you today what you deserve, what would He do? I'll be honest with you, I've had a couple of men say, probably smack me upside the head or something like that. No, friend, I'm going to tell you. Read about Calvary's cross. That's God's viewpoint of sin. It's not minor. It's not, oh, it's not a big deal. We all mess up. No, the ugliness of sin is seen in a crown of thorns. It's seen in nails in the hands and a beaten back and a God who looks away because that man became our sin. I don't want to underestimate what he said and what he meant when he said, I lay my life down. He knew what that meant. And he could have opted out and still been righteous. So no, he couldn't have still been righteous. Yes, he could. No, 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 the question has to be, if he could have opted out, if he could have said, no, I'm not doing it. Listen, did he deserve it? Then couldn't he have opted out and been righteous? The only thing that made him lay it down is what the Bible says. Love. We, as, as his creation, were so valuable to him that he said, I would rather go through that agony than for them to have to go through it. Because we have to go through it for eternity. He knew he could conquer it. And my point is this this morning. We do not want to underestimate the words, I lay it down. We must understand what he laid it down. It was a sacrifice. He knowing what must be offered to God the Father because of the uh, the horror of sin, a blood sacrifice had to be offered, a death had to be offered up, and he would offer it up in our place. So the sacrificial act was, number one, as he says in John 10, an act that was substitutional. You hear that word, but it's exactly what it is. And I think we miss this. People think, well, I'm glad Jesus died. That's wonderful. And for those who trust Him, great. They'll probably go to heaven because that's what the Bible says. But there's other ways. No, 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 that's it. Mankind's sin has only been paid for one way. And that is through the shed blood and the death of Jesus Christ. If we reject that payment, we have to pay ourselves. Yes? We either accept the payment that was made for us, or you can read the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, and pay the debt ourselves. 
And the only way to pay our debt of sin is to spend eternity apart from God in the lake of fire. That's, that's the second death. And if we don't accept the death he did for us, then we have to experience the second death ourselves. And so when Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 15, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life, and the term is for the sheep. Let me ask you something. How many of you would be willing to die for a bunch of sheep? Sheep are not the most valuable animals in the world. And they're not most the most lovely animals in the world. But I'm going to tell you what. We, like sheep, have gone astray, have we not? But what he did is he took what we had coming to spare us from it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53, you know these verses so well. Verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 53. I read these often, not just to people who need to be saved, but to us as Christians. Because I... I'm convinced in my heart we've not grasped. We've not grasped what Christ did for us if we're living half-hearted as Christians. If you're saved today and you're dragging your feet spiritually, somewhere you've not yet gotten a hold of what exactly Christ did for you. When you understand and when I understand that this is not just something that Good, I know I'm saved, now I'm on my way to heaven. But you realize what your personal sins cost him. And that he didn't have to take it, but he did anyway to spare you. That ought to endear us to him to say, you know what? You know what? If he told me to jump, I'd say how high. If he said through a hoop, I'd say how many times. If he said go to China, I would say no hesitation. All right. You tell me what to do. I know what you saved me from and I know what it cost you. Has it ever resonated in your soul what eternity in the lake of fire would be like? Has it ever just gripped a hold of you the reality of salvation? So many times for us, it's a theory because we hear it while we're sitting on a pew and God Almighty, perhaps we've never let Him get deep into our soul and help us understand the reality of an eternity in the lake of fire. It's not scare tactics to get people saved, friend. Hell is a real place and there are people in it this morning and I'm not going there and there's only one reason why. He died for me. If you can let that get a hold of your soul, it's start revival. And I'm convinced the reason we don't have revival is we don't consider Jesus Christ enough. We've not really gotten a hold of how much He loves us. It's not something quaint to just sing about in Sunday school. It's the reality, an eternal reality, and it's as real today as it's ever been. Christ still loves sinners. Why should God still mess around with trying to save me? Why should He care about me? Doesn't He have better things to do? You deal, you look at sinners, man, something. Are humans stubborn? Oh, yes. I think we underestimate that one as well. The depth of stubbornness in the human will. You know how persistent God is to get us to the point where we can actually realize that what I'm preaching to you this morning is actual fact so that it gets a hold of us and grips us? Eh, speak to men sometimes and I don't have time to think about it. <laughs> well, One day you're going to. One day you're going to want to wish you had listened and thought about eternity because you're going to be stepping into it. Eternity is not a fiction. It's not a... Listen, eternity is not a theory. I spoke of the man last week, last Sunday. 
said, what's going to happen when you die? He said, he'd already told me that Woods was his church. I said, what's going to happen when you die? Turn into a bunch of ashes, I guess. Or dirt, I forget what term he used. I said, hmm, you sure that's true? He said, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to fight it. Well, I'm not asking you to fight it. I'm just asking, is it true? You're telling me you're going to die, and that's just it. Your body's going to turn into a bunch of ashes, and you're not going anywhere. Let me, let me, let me phrase it differently. And I know this man already, so we could have kind of a more candid conversation. I said, let me ask this. I said, you, are you telling me Jesus was wrong? Because Jesus Christ made it abundantly clear that when you die, you're either going to heaven where he's at or you're going to hell. So you're telling me that's not true. Are you sure you're right and he's wrong? And then we got a little deeper in the conversation. We began to open up. He's not sure he's going to turn into ashes, by the way. It's just a convenient excuse to not have to think about it. We had a decent conversation about the truth that heaven is a real place where God is at and hell is a real place where he's not. That's, that's the essence of hell. Yes, it's an eternal flame, but I'll tell you, hell is a place where God's presence is not. And it's an eternal flame. It's an eternal place of torment, as the Bible says. And it must be. We gotta get a hold of the fact that, listen, Jesus did everything necessary to spare us from that horrible place. In Luke chapter 16, we have a vivid description of what hell is like. A man whose mouth is so parched he wants one drop of water from a man he wouldn't even speak to in this life. And Abraham tells him, oh, he's a great goat fixed. I can't send him to you. And one of the last things that Lazarus in hell does is, uh, excuse me, the rich man in hell does, he says, well then, raise Lazarus back from the dead so he can go warn my brothers lest they come into this place of torment. You know, he was doing more for evangelism than most people who claim to be a Christian begging, please, please tell my brethren, I don't want them to be in hell. I'll tell you believes in hell today. Those who are there, they believe in it. And they would that you and I might warn somebody else. And they says to Abraham, send Lazarus to warn my brethren. He says, no, they have Moses and the prophets, meaning they have the written word of God. We have more than they did. And he says, no, no, no. If somebody raised from the dead, then they would listen. He says, no, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, meaning if they won't believe what's written in the Bible, it wouldn't matter if somebody raised from the dead. That tells you the, the stock God puts on the written book. A lot more than a modernist of our day do. And he says, it, and you say, what, what are you trying to say? The reason we believe in a place called hell today is because the writings tell us so. And that's enough. You don't need to spend 30 minutes there to know it's true. You don't need to read a story about somebody who spent 30 minutes there to know it's true. It's true because God warned us about it. It's not a place where Jesus wasn't telling a parable. He was warning of the truth, of the reality of hell. But here's my point. Here's the, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus already laid his life down, so we don't have to go. Truth? Because it's sin that keeps us out of heaven, and it's sin that causes God to say, I can't accept you. It's sin that separates us from God. But the sin can be taken care of because it's already been judged. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Meaning, we looked at Him like God was punishing Him for His own sins, but it was for ours. 
Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Who did Jesus lay his life down for? The sheep. He said, I lay my life down for the sheep. What kind of sheep? The kind that go astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's what sin is, doing things my own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Now, just a real quick question. He's using a plural pronoun, the prophet Isaiah, and saying our, our, our. Who all is included in that when he says, surely hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, all we, who's he talking about? Him and who else? Everybody else. You say, how do you know that? Because in Acts chapter 8, a man that was not a Jew, this book was written to the Jewish people, but a man that was not a Jew, an Ethiopian, was reading this. And he asked Philip the evangelist, of whom speaketh the prophet, of himself or some other? And Philip from that text preached unto him Jesus. And from this text, that Ethiopian, that Gentile man, believed on Jesus to save him. Meaning this text of Scripture applies to every one of us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, I believe it is, that Jesus should taste death for every man. You say, what's the point? It's easy to say, the man I spoke to last week, who initially said he was just going to become dust, he said, well, Jesus died for everyone's sins. I've run across this more than once now. Well, Jesus died for everybody, so everybody's saved. No, 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 no. He paid the sin debt, but what he bought can't be yours unless you accept it. And that comes from a heart that's repentant from believing God and saying, I need it. Let me ask you this. If today every crime we'd ever committed in our life were brought to light, now I'm not talking about crimes against man, I'm talking about crimes against God, meaning if every time we had violated the righteous, just laws of God, were brought to heaven's court, what would be our sentencing? Just put you like this. I use this illustration a lot. If you said, uh, Pastor, how you doing? I said, not very well. I say, why? So, well, I'm about to be shipped off to Boise and I, where I will be executed in a couple of years for a crime. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> stay away from me. How many of you, if I told you I'm on death row and uh, they're just trying to catch me, as soon as they get me, I'm going to death row. My sentence has already been passed. I'm just evading the law. How many of you would want to come over and maybe stay a week with me? Why not? Say, well, because you're on death row. Well, all I did was took a Butterfinger from the grocery store. What would you tell me? If I said, I'm going to be executed because I stole a Butterfinger. What would you tell me? You say, you're a liar. If you had some courage, you'd tell me I'm a liar. Because you say, no, no, the nature of the crime determines the punishment. Here's what we look at. Well, my sins mean every now and then I have a bad day. God says, no, the nature of your sin means Calvary's cross. You don't know how bad our sins are. Again, we look at what Jesus suffered because whose sins did he suffer for? Ours. Meaning, look here now, don't lose me. My sin put nails in his hands. My sin, not just everybody's, mine put thorns on his head. 
stripes on his back and turned the face of God away from him. My sin. And are we ready to make light of it? You see, that's what Jesus was willing to take so that our sins could be fully punished, paid for by him instead of us. One man, Adam, made us sinful. Only one man, Jesus Christ, can make us righteous. That's God's way. And here's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. Jesus said, I lay my life down for the sheep, meaning the sheep strayed off, got themselves into trouble, and to save them, it's going to cost me my life. That's what happened. He laid his life down as a substitute for our sins. Let me read you a couple of other verses quickly, and we'll come to our last two points. So he, he's a sacrifice. It was a sovereign act, him laying his life down, a submissive act, but a sacrificial act as a substitute for our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, explaining what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, that there means unless you were pretending to believe and you did not. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died, what's it say next? For our sins according to the Scriptures. You realize who's writing this? is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul knew that what Jesus suffered on the cross was because of his own personal sins. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 I will read Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. If you have time, you can follow along there. I'm going to go a little more quickly. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 3 says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation has to do with the price paid to reconcile someone who is estranged because of sin. First John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the price paid on behalf of the individual sin and Every individual sin, meaning the whole world. First John chapter 4, we'll read this before we move on to our next couple of points. First John chapter 4, verse 10. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I hear a lot because of familiarity with the things of God today. I hear a lot of people say, you ask them, are you saved? Are you saved from your sins? Oh, yes. Why? Well, I believe in God. The devils believed in God. The Bible says the devils, how many of you know that the devils, the mean demons, are monotheistic? There are no pantheist demons. There are no polytheistic demons. I mean, they don't believe in multiple gods or that God is everything. The demons believe in one God because they know who's God. And they tremble, meaning they not only know there's one God, they're afraid of that God. And they're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Because when I'm saved, I believe in God. No, no. If you believe in God, you must come to the point where you believe in Jesus Christ, the one who sovereignly, submissively laid down his life as a payment for your personal sin. He is the substitute for our sins. Praise God, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Meaning, you can go find anybody out there and say, he died for your sins too. 
And he died for your sins too. Amen? He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so he, his act was sovereign, submissive, but a sacrificial in that he gave himself as a substitute for our sins. We'll read in a moment Romans 5, 8 through 10, the best verses I know on this matter of substitution. And so as a substitute for our sins, he then became and is the Savior from our sins. Because only He died for us, only He can give you what He died for. He laid down His life for us, and He took it up again, and only He can grant you forgiveness with God. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 8, 9, and 10. No, no individual has a right outside of Jesus Christ to get pardon for God. Some say, well, I know I'm saved because I ask God every day to forgive my sins. Based on what merit? Why should God hear me? Outside of faith in Christ, He'll never hear me. God only has respect for me as I have faith in His Son. We have access to God through faith in Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Meaning, His death settled our sin debt. It squared things up in the eyes of God. Jesus has already been punished for my sins and yours. There's nothing else you and I can do to satisfy God's wrath against man. Jesus did it. And so outside of that, there is no salvation. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. But here's the thing. Because he died for us, and because he had the power to lay his life down, and he had power to take it up again, then today his death reconciles us, meaning it grants us forgiveness with God, but his life imparts to us new life because he's living. And so then... As our substitute, He raised from the dead and is today the only Savior. He came, the Bible says in Matthew 1.21, to save His people from their sins. The one who took your place and was punished on your behalf lives today to give you eternal life because He is eternal life. That's why death couldn't hold Him. So His act of laying His life down, sovereign and submissive, sacrificial as our substitute and as our Savior from our sins, May I say this this morning, so many of you listening are like, yes, yes, yes. Well, as such, he is also the shepherd of our souls, meaning we who have been saved by him are to look at him and say, now we're to follow in his steps. We are to conform to him. He is not only our savior, it's not only our savior who became our substitute, but that was our shepherd. What does a shepherd do with sheep? Well, this is not hard. He leads them and feeds them and protects them. Well, if he's my shepherd, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. May we follow his example. The following of his example doesn't save us. We follow his example because he saved us. Look, if you would, quickly at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It says, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Listen now. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. Why? Because no man took his life. He laid it down. (laughs) When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, verse 24, who his own self 
bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Why did he do that? That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. He died to liberate us from sin. He took the, the ultimate end of sin so we could be saved from it and be liberated to serve God and do what's right. That we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. That's referencing Isaiah 53. For ye were, past tense, as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. That shepherd who died for us, who, who, who paid for our sins, and it's his stripes on the cross that has healed us of our guilt and shame and forgiven our iniquities because he paid the debt. Today, what the Bible says, because he did that for you, follow him. That's why Romans 6 says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? For as many as are baptized into Christ are baptized into His death. Death to what? Death to what put Him on the cross. His death on the cross was there to, by our faith in Him, cause us to die to sin. When I realize what Christ did for me, it turns my heart away from sin and says, if He died for me to save me from sin, then I want to live for Him and do what's right. There's something desperately wrong with someone that says, I've been to the cross, I've been forgiven and received forgiveness of sins by what Jesus did for me there, and I love the things that put him there. I love the things that put nails in his hands and and thorns on his head. No, the cross is to kill something in you. By faith in Jesus Christ, I died a sin. That's why you need to remember the cross daily. Not because you need saved daily, but that the cross of Jesus Christ might get my disposition towards sin and righteousness squarely set. Sin behind me, righteousness in front of me because the bishop of my soul delivered me through his death from sin to do what's right. Make sense? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things, the sin life, are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That brings us finally to Titus chapter 2. This is why the grace of God teaches us to live a certain way. Why did, why did God in Christ lay his life down for us? Speaking to a man this week, and he's been brought up under a works-based oriented way of thinking. And I tried to say it to him this way. I said, God loves you not because there's anything good in you. God loves you because he's good. Yes? God loved God the Son because He's good, but not us. And here in His love, not that we loved Him. Somebody says, I've always loved God. No, you haven't. If you think you've always loved God, you've not started yet. No man seeketh after God. How many of us know that? It's not our natural bent to seek God. So it was mine. No, no, no. God seeks us. We seek after sin, but God sought after us to save us out of it and did everything necessary to do it. And so when we put our trust in Him, He delivers us from sin and its penalty, but He delivers us that we might, through His death, die to it and live unto Him. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. May I say this? There are those that say, well, if you don't think you're working for your salvation, what will motivate you to do what's right? The grace of God. A true perception of the grace of God that God did for me what he did because he is good. I didn't deserve it. My sins are forgiven. My debt has been paid. I have eternal life not because of any one good thing in me, but because he loved me, came down and did what was necessary to liberate me from sin and its ultimate consequence. Now, I'm going to tell you what. If knowing what Jesus did for you, willingly, no man made him, He did it of his own volition. That's grace. God doing for us what we do not deserve. In that while we were yet, what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're here this morning and you're saved by the grace of God, it should stir your soul to say the only reason I'm not under the wrath of God today is because he laid down his life. He did it for me. He did it for me. Can you imagine... Here's what happens. We, we live in an ungrateful age. Jesus said, God told us one of the marks of our time would be unthankfulness. Romans chapter 1. Unthankful. This morning, you and I get to sit in church. I'm not worried about the Gestapo coming in this morning. Not yet. <laughs> you know why? Some people, some time back, died on some seashores. So we'd have the right to do this this morning. Truth? You know what we often think? I don't care what they did as long as I get to live the way I want. Now, I'm on my way to heaven today, not hell, because some one person took what I deserve from God for me 2,000 years ago. You know what we're prone to think? As long as I get to live the way I want, I don't care what he did. It's pretty wicked, isn't it? Now, if you're saved here this morning, you say, I want no part of that. I want no part of that. Amen. If you know Christ did that for you and you've received that, then it's very personal to you. If you're here this morning and maybe you think, you know what, I just want God to be happy with me. There's nothing you can do to get him happy with you other than put your trust in what Jesus did for you. If you're here this morning, you've never received God's gift of the forgiveness of your sins. It's already been paid for. If you'll recognize you need God's forgiveness, that's called repentance. He's offered a way for you to be forgiven. You trust Jesus enough to call on him today to save you from your sins, and he will. And then live for him as the shepherd of your soul. Maybe we're here this morning, and the world we live in has got our focus off of how great the grace of God is in our life. If you're saved this morning, you know what I'm preaching to you is true. The Spirit of God confirms it in your heart. Should we not then live unto him? If he died for us, And he lives for us. Shouldn't we just live unto him? Should we not deny ungodliness, the things that put him on the cross, and worldliness, and the things, the lust of this world and this life, so we may please the one who died for us? No motivator like the love of Jesus Christ. And we'll never love him until we experience and understand how great his love is for us. No man taketh it from me, he said. I lay it down. He willingly, purposely went through the agony he did All for one reason, so you and I could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. No greater love than that, is there?